Tonight we'll be turning in our Bibles to two places, first in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, considering the second commandment. In just a few minutes I'll be reading from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that helped explain the second commandment. After we read these three verses from Exodus chapter 20, we'll turn to John chapter 4 and then read three verses from John chapter 4 that'll be helpful tonight as we consider the second commandment in the light of Jesus Christ. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, a few verses from this section of Scripture that I'll return to in a little bit. This is Jesus' words to the woman at the well in Samaria. He tells here, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then what we confess concerning the second commandment in the shorter catechism. Question 50, what is required in the second commandment? It says, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. Question 51, what is forbidden in the second commandment? The answer is the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. And question 52, what are the reasons attached to the second commandment? And the answer is the reasons connected to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he has to his own worship. May God bless us tonight as we consider this second commandment. Last Sunday when I began speaking about the commandments of God with the first commandment, I noted that the first commandment answers the question, who do we worship? The second commandment answers the question, how do we worship? And in the history of Christianity, especially Reformed Christianity, the second commandment has received a great deal of attention, probably as much or more than any other commandment in the Scriptures. Worship is very important to us as Christians because it is important to God. Worship is the process of giving God the honor, demonstrating the worthiness of God to receive the praise that we offer to Him. And that worship is concentrated in the times that we spend here together in what we would call corporate worship. Now, more generally, we sometimes talk about worship as something that we offer to God at various other times in our lives. For example, we serve God in our homes, in relationships with others, in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. We can say that worship just in that general sense is living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But when we talk about worship in the second commandment, 
we're talking more narrowly about the worship that we offer here together in corporate worship. And this is where, again, that second commandment clearly applies. Now, if all that sounds rather artificial to you, I want to make it very, very specific. And I want to ask the question tonight, what does the second commandment ask us to do? And the way I want to answer that question is, first of all, talking about what the commandment is about, so what does it mean? And then secondly, what is our particular temptation to break it? So let's start with what is the second commandment all about? And we read just a few minutes ago, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, And here we read for the first time what we might call images or carved images or likeness or something of that sort. The idea is that we take something that is part of this creation and use it in the worship of God. It's where we get our idea of an idol from. An idol is something that we use in order to worship some other deity. The idol in itself is not the deity in the second commandment, it's the means by which we say that we worship God. Now, maybe that sounds like a very fine distinction, so I have the joy tonight of using an example from Scripture, which I think is one of the most fascinating examples in the Bible of the violation of God's people toward the second commandment. And it comes from Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. If you just think for a moment, In Exodus 32, where are we in the history of redemption? The book of Exodus is named after the exit of the Israelites from the land of Egypt, where they were in captivity. You also know that Exodus 32 comes about a dozen chapters after Exodus 20, which we are reading here a portion of tonight. In Exodus 32, so shortly after the part we're reading here tonight... We read that Moses is up on the Mount of Sinai receiving instructions for the tabernacle. He has already received the Ten Commandments. Now he's receiving God's design for the tabernacle. But back on the ground, the Israelites believe it's taking entirely too long. It's way too long, they say, and they begin to wonder if Moses is never coming down from the mountain. He has been the mediator between them and God. He has been appointed to that place, and now Moses is gone, and the Israelites start to wonder, what should we do in the place of Moses? So Moses' brother, Aaron, does something that makes a great deal of sense to the rest of the Israelites. He tells people to remove the jewelry from their nose and from their ears and give them the gold jewelry, and he melts it down and makes it into a golden calf. And he says to the Israelites in Exodus 32, verse 8, listen, he says, "'These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt.'" Now, let me explain to you why Moses, or rather Aaron, might have done that. It was not, as we might first think that would be true, that Aaron was saying someone beside the God of the Bible himself had brought them out of Egypt. That's not what he was saying. Because Aaron goes on to say, in just a verse later, tomorrow, after we cast this golden calf 
we will offer a feast, he says, to the Lord. And the next day, it says, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, as they would have, as prescribed in the Old Testament, to the Lord. In the Egyptian culture, the calf was the symbol of power and fertility. And in the absence of Moses, who was the mediator between God and his people, the people of Israel felt like they had lost their access to God. And so they looked for an object that can then substitute for Moses, and their substitute is this golden calf of all things, which in Egypt they have been trained to view as a symbol of power and fertility. You can imagine the Israelites saying, well, where is Moses? He's up on the mountain. Is he ever coming down? I don't think so. What should we do instead? Let's have another mediator. Somebody we know, something we know is proven in being a mediator between God, the gods, and man. Something that represents God in a way that we can worship him. Now, this is fascinating. If you read through the rest of that passage, it doesn't take long to come to the conclusion that God was not at all happy with their attempts to worship him through the golden calf. In fact, it says that God looks down from the top of Mount Sinai to see what is happening, and he is so offended that he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm just going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And it is only because of the imploring of Moses, the mediator again, that God relents. And instead we read in that chapter that Moses goes down from the mountain. He hears the people worshiping worshiping loudly around the golden calf. He throws down the tablets of the Ten Commandments he was carrying. And these tablets are shattered. Now maybe you've always thought in your mind he shatters them because he is frustrated and angry. Perhaps, but more likely he shatters them in order to demonstrate to the Israelites the covenant that you had with God has been broken. Watch this. Boom. Down go the tablets. You have shattered this relationship that God has established with you into a thousand pieces as clearly as these tablets that summarize the requirements that God gave you now lie before you. And Moses grinds up the golden calf into dust. He puts it into the water that they would drink and makes them drink the water. And for all the kids, you're going to love this. They literally turn their idol into dung. So let me ask you, why is the golden calf so offensive to God? Weren't the people being sincere? Were they not trying to worship, to do the best they could in the absence of Moses? Well, it's very clear that they were disobeying God. They most certainly were. God had said just a few chapters earlier, do not make any graven images of anything in the heaven above, the earth below, anything that you see, no graven images to worship me through them. And it only takes about a dozen chapters until they're doing precisely that. They were violating his law in every right to respond with judgment. God is a right judge of those who break his commandments. But tonight, I'm going to tell you that that does not plumb the depths of the reason why God responds this way to the Israelites. God's judgment on them 
goes beyond the simple breaking of one of his commandments. It is because of the nature of the second commandment that God is so thoroughly offended by them. To explain that, I want to go to the passage that I read secondly this evening, and that is John chapter 4. In that passage, Jesus has been talking to a woman who came to the well to draw water. If you've been in church for some time, perhaps you remember that story. His disciples have gone into town. Jesus is sitting alone at the well. A woman comes, and he engages her in conversation. Maybe the reason you remember that passage is because you're impressed that Jesus is able to tell her how many men that she has been with. But that's not the main point. The woman, after Jesus asks about that, turns the attention of Jesus to the custom that her people had of worshiping on the mountain that was there instead of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was a place where God commanded his people to go because his presence was there in the temple. Do you want to go and worship God? In the Old Testament, you went to the place where God was said to dwell, to go to the temple. Once a year to the Holy of Holies, the high priest would enter in in order to offer atonement there. That's where God had his presence. And I'm sure Jesus surprises her by telling her that the time had arrived when God's worshipers would not go to either this mountain or to Jerusalem, but they would worship God in spirit and in truth. Now that's a bit of a strange answer if you think about it. She asks, where should we go to worship? And Jesus responds with, how? And of course, Jesus is right to turn her attention to the how. The how is the big question. When the Messiah arrives, or to put it this way, once Jesus comes into the world, no longer do we need to go to Jerusalem. There is no particular locality where God is located. Instead, we can go wherever the Spirit of God is with his people to worship him. Our mediator is right here and right now, present by his spirit. We are and can worship God in this place because the spirit of Jesus Christ, our mediator, is here. Can you hear the amazement then when Jesus says to this woman, I'm the Messiah, I have arrived, you worship God through me, I'm the mediator. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't worry about this mountain. They don't matter anymore. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship through the spirit that I send. Through the spirit that is my spirit. And you will worship God in truth. To make that point more generally, friends, that is always true with worship. If our mediator is something beside Jesus Christ, And it could be all kinds of things. It could be a golden calf like the Israelites used in Exodus 32. But it could be all sorts of other things. Whatever we trust in to make us right with God, to bring us before God in peace. If our mediator is something beside Jesus, our God is deeply offended. 
Because Jesus is the mediator God has given us. If I can put things as bluntly as possible, the reason God was offended in Exodus 32 was not simply because they had disobeyed a commandment. God had said one thing, they did another. No, God had said one thing, that is, they were to only come to him in the way that he had said, because there was an underlying reason, and the reason was this. When they use something beside, when we use something beside Jesus Christ to come to the Father, we are dishonoring Jesus Christ. So that Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, when they substituted the golden calf for Moses, God was offended because the Israelites destroyed the way that Moses anticipated Jesus. Or again, to put it a little differently, any practice of Christianity that does not exalt Jesus as our mediator is a thoroughgoing violation of the second commandment. I know one of the ways that we can talk about the second commandment is simply as a prescription that comes to us by God. It's like all the other commandments. Make sure you keep a Sabbath day's rest. Make sure you don't steal. Make sure you don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Make sure you worship the right God. And they just sound like commandments. And we may think to ourselves, we have to obey them because God is bigger and stronger than we are. And if we don't do what he wants, he can punish us. That is only the surface of the logic of the commandments, especially this one. This commandment is not designed simply to give you something to follow so you can be a good Christian. This commandment is given you so that you can access the Father through Jesus. That's why the commandment is here. God wants your worship. How can you possibly worship the God who is apart from Jesus Christ? You will be frustrated in your worship If you attempt to worship the God who is apart from Jesus, that's why the second commandment exists. Is that not incredible? I am so impressed by that. These are not some brazen commandments just to give us a list of rights and wrongs. This is an expression of God's desire that we could come before him and worship that pleases him. This is God's kindness to you. It is not too much to say it's gracious of our God to give us the second commandment. Before I get too excited, just let me say to you that there's a second thing I want to consider with you as well, and that is something that's a little more brief, and that is how we might offend of this second commandment. What temptation comes to us easily? There's a few things that are fairly obvious, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about this tonight, but I do want to think about them with you. The most obvious violations that we have of the second commandment are those that ignore something God has commanded in worship or to substitute something in its place. We read that In the catechism's explanation of the second commandment, do the things God has said, do not do the things that he has prohibited. In worship, Christians seek to do the things that God has called us to and restrain from doing the things God has not. Again, it may simply sound like a pattern of do's and don'ts. I assure you, it is not. The reason we sing, the reason we pray, the reason we read the Bible and have it explained, the reason we use the sacraments 
is not simply because they are commanded in the Bible and to do otherwise would be disobedient. The reason it is disobedient is because what, has, what God has required us, what he's called us to do in worship, exalts Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. I hope that you can see, if you're here every Sunday, that it really is impossible to understand the Scriptures, no matter where you are in the Bible. It really is impossible to understand the Scriptures accurately without the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Whether we are talking about Exodus 32 or John chapter 4, Jesus is at the center of the Scriptures so that when Jesus says to the two travelers at the end of Luke in chapter 24, beginning at the prophets and the law, he explained to them how all the Scriptures pointed to himself. That's not hyperbole. That's the truth. So that when I am here, one of the other pastors is here preaching the word of God to you, we're not simply taking a passage and saying, let us give you the meaning of every word, add it all up, and it's adequate. We are interested in the words and the phrases. We want you to know those things because they point to Jesus Christ. It would be like you reading a few paragraphs in a book and then saying, I know the whole story. If you don't know the storyline, you can't understand how a portion fits within it. And the great storyline of the Bible is that we have rebelled against our Creator, and in Jesus Christ, God has given us a Redeemer. That's why we preach and use the Scriptures so much. It is an obedience to the command of God, but that obedience leads us to Jesus over and over and over again. And does your heart ever get tired of hearing about the grace of Jesus Christ for you? Let me give you another example, the sacraments. A week or so back, we had a baptism. Last week, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. Why do we celebrate these things? Our confessions say because they are commanded to us by Jesus. What marks a sacrament from something that is not a sacrament? A sacrament is commanded to us by Jesus Christ. It's the reason a funeral is not a sacrament. It's the reason that even a wedding is not a sacrament. The Lord's Supper and baptism are sacraments because they are commanded to us by Christ. Again, initially you might say to yourself, well, it just means we have to obey Jesus then. He's stronger, we worship him, we have to do what Jesus says. But do you realize in the sacraments, Jesus Christ is exalted. If explaining the sacrament of the Lord's Supper somewhere I do not explain to you this sacrament is meant to draw you to Jesus Christ so that you are nourished by him. His life is given for you. He died in your place. You can have hope, eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Well, let me tell you, I've not done an adequate job of explaining the sacrament. If we have a baptism, whether it's infant baptism or an adult who comes to faith and an adult baptism, and I do not explain that the water that is poured on this person represents the cleansing power of Jesus Christ, you've missed the point of baptism. The reason that we preach the word and we administer the sacraments given to us by Christ is because they lead us to Jesus. That's why we do them. 
The songs that we sang are about the work God has done in history, his world, our place in it, and how they lead lead us to Jesus. Every prayer we offer in this building comes in the name of who? Jesus. Because Jesus is our mediator. And the second commandment is meant to stamp in front of our eyes the truth that the worship that we offer to the God of the universe, the God who is turning the trees from green to purple and yellow and orange, the God who upholds all of this, he accepts my worship as awful as often I am. He accepts my worship because of Jesus. And when we do those things that please our God, we're not just being obedient. We're being obedient with the logic that God is using that we would see our mediator, Jesus Christ. Let me just put it this way. The second commandment, like all commandments, is about more than the command to just be obedient. It is a matter of love. It is a matter of how God loves us and we are called to love our Savior. So let me encourage you to do two things as I end here tonight. The first is to love worship in the way that God designed it to be. I know there are places in the world where it's very hard to worship. I've used this illustration before. I want to use it again. A number of years ago, someone who understood North Korea well said, in North Korea, you are prohibited from speaking the name of Jesus. If you do, you can be arrested and even killed. Did you know that? So Christians have arranged that they will come and sit on a park bench next to each other and never say a word. It's the closest they ever get to worship in North Korea And my friends, here we are in a country where we are given a right by the Constitution to worship God freely without encumbrance. And more than that, as awesome as that is, incredible as that is, even more incredible is that the God of the universe accepts our worship through Jesus Christ. Oh my word. Would you love worship in the same way that motivates our God to give us a mediator so that our worship is acceptable to him. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to deepen your understanding of the commandments. Last week, Sunday evening, when I started this series, I said I remember a warning that was given to me by my seminary ethics professor. He said, young seminarians, you become pastors, and when you do, you're going to be tempted to preach a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because you're going to deserve all kinds of things you think the people of God are doing wrong, and preaching a series on the Ten Commandments is a surefire way to straighten them out. He said, don't do it. Wait until you've been in ministry five years or ten years, because it may turn out that you misunderstand the commandments in your zeal to turn the people of God into what you believe they ought to be. Wait until you understand the depth of commandments that the Spirit of Christ can transform them through the preaching of the Word. Well, here I am, some 20 years later, after seminary preaching through the Ten Commandments, Now, I understand what that man meant. I'm not calling you to wooden obedience tonight. 
I'm calling you to serve the God of the universe who is, and to do so not only in truth, that is, worshiping the right God, but to worship that God through the mediatorial work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for Him. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we are deeply grateful tonight that Your Word holds together as one is one tapestry woven over many years of history. That even when we pull in this thread of the second commandment in Exodus 20, we are led by your Spirit to do more than just consider the words of what we're called to do or not to do, but we're called to see those commandments in the light of our Savior Jesus. Father, that ought to deepen our love for your commandments so that we say along with the psalmist, Oh, I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Maybe that's always befuddled us because it seemed weird to want to spend our time thinking about do's and don'ts as though we would love to do that. Our hearts do not love that at all. Well, Lord, if we see the commandments of God leading us to Jesus Christ, then we can also love your law because we love your Son. And I pray for each person who is here, each person who is listening over the internet stream, even people who might hear this many years from now, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that Jesus talked about to that woman at the well in John 4, your Spirit, our Savior, would be active here and wherever the Word is proclaimed. Father, we trust that you not only have the ability to do this, more importantly, you have the desire And so we pray this with confidence in Jesus' name, amen.